I've put these thoughts together on various topics which seem highly relevant to our current scene in view of travel in different places and a large email correspondence. The main point, I think, is our shared commitment to the Great Commission. This 20th conference is special in view of the exciting developments which have taken place since last year and particularly since the advent of the miracle of the Internet. One year at this conference, we were exhorted to publish, and I think we've done this, with our websites, we are much more public. The combined outreach effect of what we might call Abrahamics or Abrahamic people is vast compared with 20 years ago. But we need much more presence out there if the gospel of the kingdom is to resound to the far corners of the globe. Only then, Jesus said, can the end come. Only when this, that's to say, this well-known to the New Testament gospel of the kingdom has been preached everywhere, internationally, only then can the end come. Matthew 24, verse 14. Christians are called disciples of the kingdom. In Matthew 13, verse 52. There will be one single parousia, or second coming, and Paul described it as the event at which the saints living at the time or sleeping in death, Psalm 13, 3, Daniel 12, verse 2, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 5, those sleeping saints will be caught up to meet the Lord Jesus to escort the royal personage as he heads towards the earth, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 and following. As Paul said, whether we are sleeping or awake, at his future coming, we will live together with him. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 5. In order to begin to live with him at his return, we must be dead before that time. As in Daniel 12, verse 2, and as in the case of the dead sleeping Lazarus, resurrection always means the coming back to life of formerly dead persons. Bishop Tom Wright gets this wrong when he speaks of life after life after death. Unlike the Jehovah's Witnesses at your door, we hope to gain immortality at that future point of time. They hope only for continuing life, as long as they don't fall away. As to say, even in the future paradise, JWs do not consider themselves as now born again or members of the body of Christ or saints, yet they have taken on the Great Commission. That's really a paradox. There are seven million of them hard at work as we speak. Is anyone planning a mission to them? Hal Lindsay has caused a considerable confusion by forgetting that that great event in 1 Thessalonians 4 is called by Paul the parousia, the 
second coming, and there is no other. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 15. Jesus gathers the saints, as he said, and I'm quoting now, immediately after, as to say post, after the tribulation of those days. Matthew 24 verses 29 to 31. And Christians, Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 to 8, must expect affliction and trouble until, and I quote Paul's words here, until the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed in flaming fire, taking vengeance on his enemies. That is not a secret event. Paul could not have written this if he expected a relief from suffering seven years earlier. Nor would Jesus advise fleeing to the hills if lift off before that time is promised. Although Harold Camping of Family Radio says that the end of the world will occur on May the 21st, he will be proved wrong very soon. After selling lots of books, as he also did in the 80s with another failed prediction of the second coming. Abrahamic people have been wise enough not to set dates. The Seventh-day Adventists were sure that 1844 was the second coming, and J.W.'s knew that 1914 was the date. But the mathematics behind these failed prophecies are now seen to be quite unintelligent. On a humorous note, we get emails sometimes which begin, I've read what you say about God and Jesus, but Anthony, have you ever read John 1 verse 1? Recently, a dear correspondent wrote, Will you please explain the free existence of Jesus? He meant, of course, pre-existence of Jesus. On site after site, one finds this, and this shows what we are up against. We find this. Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. He actively participated in the creation of this world, John 1, verses 1 to 5. He was the true light, the light of the world. But the world did not know him. John 1, verses 6 to 11. The disciples beheld his glory, but the vast majority of those who saw and heard him did not really see him for who he was. They did not behold his glory. This matter is taken up later on in John's Gospel, but let me briefly turn your attention to an important text in John. John said, I glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me at your side with the glory I had with you before the world was created. John 17, verses 4 to 5. Our Lord had great glory in heaven, and this visible glory he set aside to come to the earth in human flesh. 
he glorified God by his humility and obedience, which culminated in the sacrificial and humiliating death. Because of this, the Father has given him even greater glory. That glory will be openly and visibly manifested at his second coming and in heaven, that's to say glory. All this, as I've just described, is not descriptive of Jesus Messiah born in Bethlehem. It describes, and this is why it is so terribly wrong, an essentially non-human Jesus. And John's Gospel is being fearfully twisted to support this from outer space visitor who is not really the Messiah of the Bible, and he's certainly not the Father. Martin Luther raised on a Jesus who did not begin in Mary, actually mistranslated 1 John 4 verse 2 to read, come into the flesh, instead of, as it should be, come in flesh. German translations today have happily corrected Luther's mistake. If we all work tirelessly day after day, to correct this bizarre picture of a non-human Jesus, we would barely make a dent in the gargantuan problem built into the DNA of the church-going public. Some of the public seem terribly exercised about the right of President Obama to be in office. The issue is, where was he born? Where is he from? The public seems unconcerned about the angel Michael Jesus, promoted by seven million JWs, or the God Jesus offered to the public by standard forms of the faith, propagated weekly by the slogan that Jesus is God. How many Yahwehs, how many Jehovahs does that make? since the Father is certainly Yahweh. Sounds like two, which is one too many. Matthew provides basic information about the origin of Jesus, the genesis of Jesus, as the Greek reads. This is not just his birth, but his origin. Who was Jesus originally? We can know about the origin and birth certificate of Jesus by reading Luke and Matthew. The Jehovah's Witnesses invited us recently to take part in the celebration of their annual Passover, and their tract told us that Jesus came down from heaven as a transformed angel. What they did not say was that Every good gift comes down from heaven. James 1 verse 17 and James 3 verse 15. What they did not say is that Jesus said his flesh, which is bread, 
came down from heaven. John 6, verse 51. Is this not obviously non-literal language? Can you spot the amazing trick? I quote, the word echad, meaning one in Hebrew, often means a multiple unity, such as one cluster of grapes or one bunch of sticks. So says Stern in his Jewish New Testament, page 97. Again, the word one in Hebrew is inherently a plural word. That's a quotation from a recent book by the Seventh-day Adventist to promote the Trinity. In the book The Trinity by Widden, Moon, and Reeve, page 76. Who is the blessed seed of Abraham? I'm challenged by the repeated and persistent mail I receive from a Michael Evans who wants me to contribute dollars. Different amounts will bring various rewards, like a lapel pin or a DVD or beautiful pewter plate. His point is that we all ought to be helping Jews return to the land. What I think he overlooks is the golden verse, the golden key verse in Galatians 3, verse 29, which says that if we are biblical Christians, we are reckoned as Abraham's children or seed and are thus heirs to the promises. This verse in Galatians 3.29 is a backbone to New Testament theology and when neglected or rejected leads to the collapse of much New Testament theology. Without this text firmly in place, all sorts of chaos results. Some lost track of Galatians 3.29 when they misapplied the words, I will bless those who bless you, to the physical descendants of Abraham. But that is to misunderstand Galatians chapter 3. The Christian concern is not with the politics of this age. Galatians 3.29 defines who for the moment are the true seed of Abraham. Jesus spent a lot of his time trying to persuade hostile Jews that unless they accepted Jesus as Messiah, they no longer counted as the true people of God. The time is coming, Hosea says, that Israel, who are now reckoned as not my people, Hosea 1, verses 9 and 10, will one day repent and be restored. But that has not happened yet. I personally find verses like Matthew 19, verse 28, and Galatians 3, verse 29, absolutely thrilling, as well as humbling. Imagine that. We, whoever we are in terms of national background, are now honored by the great God with the status of Abraham's sons and daughters, 
because we have believed and obeyed the unique and final agent of God, who is the Lord Messiah Jesus. Luke 2 verse 11. And if we are now constituted the children of Abraham, then we are going to inherit the very promises made to Abraham and to Jesus. I quote here, the promise to Abraham, and we remember Abraham, the promise made to him was that he would inherit the world, Romans 4.13, sounds very much like the almost entirely ignored saying of Jesus that the meek are going to inherit the earth quoting about six passages in Psalm 37. And Matthew 19, verse 28, spells out in the plainest terms the role of the apostles in the future kingdom on earth when Jesus comes back. Dispensationalism, which underlies most American fundamentalist churches, has given away the promise of Matthew 5 verse 5 to unconverted Jews and thus robbed true Christians of their inheritance and Abraham's inheritance. The meek will indeed inherit the land, not go to heaven. Unconverted Jews must accept the Messiah who has come in order to inherit the land and be true children of Abraham. Yes, indeed, we have seen so-called apocalyptic scenes in Japan and startling evidence of the awesome power of God even at the St. Louis airport. Yes, indeed, there is now, since 1948, a nation of Israel in the Middle East. Yes, indeed, Jesus is coming visibly. He is really coming back. But the NIV gets it all wrong when it says that Jesus went back to heaven at the ascension. The NIV mistranslates that as go back instead of just go. In John 13, 3, John 16, 28, and John 20, verse 17. The NIV misleads badly in Philippians 2 and very cleverly when it has Jesus preaching good news but Paul preaching the gospel. The Greek word evangelion, of course, is in both those passages and should be translated consistently as gospel. So the second coming is not a drive-through by which the Messiah swoops down in the clouds only to do a U-turn and disappear again into heaven. That would not be a second coming at all. This non-second coming would mean that 23 millions of Seventh-day Adventists are right, and I fear that they have been misled here on a large scale. When they say that only the devil will be on earth for a thousand years, it is the devil who does not want Jesus back 
on earth. So that thousand-year period will be the time when the devil is bound and imprisoned, not on earth, but in the abyss, and his crippling present deceiving of the whole world, Revelation 12 verse 9, will come to a screeching halt. Revelation 20 verse 3. It is fascinating to me that A.T., not J.A.T. Robertson, in his famous word pictures, available with BibleWork software, says that it's unclear what Jesus meant in Matthew 19.28. Unclear? Jesus had just been asked the worthy question by Peter, what can we expect to receive as reward at the end of this titanic struggle against the forces of popular religion? What's in it for us? Jesus was fully responsive and certainly not rebuking with his forthright answer, let me tell you on the authority of the God I serve. Amen, amen, I tell you. At the rebirth of the world, when the Son of Man sits on his throne of glory, you too will be seated on twelve thrones to administer the twelve tribes of Israel. How many sermons are you hearing on these shatteringly interesting words of Jesus? My impression is that in church, people would just like to think that Jesus died and rose. Not much else in the teaching of Jesus seems to get the sort of publicity it deserves. This text, of course, is repeated in Luke 22, where the new administration, with the twelve tribes regathered in the land, is said to be the core of the new covenant. The apostles are promised seats at the dinner table with Messiah, and positions of administrative responsibility with Messiah. Acts 1 verse 6 arises out of this major topic, of course. Is this the time, the disciples asked, for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? This, of course, is the question. And I remind you, and please do tell all your friends. Calvin was terribly misled when he commented by saying that there are more errors in that question in Acts 1.6, that question about the restored national sovereignty to Israel. More errors, Calvin said, than there are words. Therefore, there are about 16 errors. And people continue in their droves to name themselves by the name of Calvin, who also murdered our Unitarian brother Servetus. For interesting history on that subject, do please read Did Calvin Murder Servetus? by Stanford Reeves. Much time has been wasted on a false attempt to get at the Jewishness of Jesus in areas where no challenge to mainstream is necessary. I mean the emphasis by some on the Jewish calendar and especially the claim 
that the fourth commandment about Sabbath keeping is now binding on us all in the letter. The New Testament seems quite content with the use of Lord, Kyrios in Greek for God, and as Joe Martin points out, stresses the use of Father now that the Son has come. This is the wonderful new thing in the New Covenant. The New Testament actually takes the idea, not the exact Hebrew word, but the idea of the name of Yahweh, as to say the one who is and who was and is to come, and puts it into Greek for us in Revelation 1 verse 4 and verse 8. Revelation 4 verse 8, Revelation 11 verse 17, and Revelation 16 verse 5. What is not always noted is that when Jesus is called Lord, following the word Adoni, my Lord, lowercase l, of Psalm 110.1, the Greek very frequently has the definite article, the Lord Jesus. When Kyrios is without the article, it is very often, not invariably, the word to designate the Lord God, Kyrios or Yahweh. One cannot say the Yahweh or my Yahweh because Yahweh is a proper name. Another question which keeps surfacing is the effort of some to force us into a Saturday resurrection. Garner Ted Armstrong wrote that one could not be saved unless he believed that the crucifixion was on Wednesday and the resurrection on Saturday. My reply to one recent inquirer goes like this. Thanks, but you're easy to explain, as you say, is, I think, much more easily explained like this. Firstly, the fact that Jesus kept the Passover on the same day as the nation, not with some private calendar. Jesus did not die when the Passover was being eaten. He also ate the Passover and died the next day. The Friday of Passover week was the preparation day, not for the Passover, but of Passover week. See the final analysis in Robertson's Harmony of the Gospels in an appendix. Secondly, Luke, as he was a madman, could not write, Sabbath was coming, and on the Sabbath they rested, and mean two different days. Luke 23, verses 54 to 56. Sabbath in the New Testament is the word for Saturday. Luke shows his inclusive reckoning as today, tomorrow, and the third day, or today, tomorrow, and the next day. Luke chapter 13, verses 32 and 33. Sunday, of course, is the third day since Friday. In Luke 24, verse 21, the resurrection was on that third day, 
I think there is no need to oppose what has long been clear to the majority. Luke 24 verse 21 is absolutely a fixed datum and two Sabbaths is a sheer impossibility in Luke 23 verse 56. He would be a rotten historian if Luke was so confusing as to propose a resurrection other than on Sunday and a crucifixion other than on Friday. Then the important issue of the future and final restoration of national Israel. Romans chapter 9 to 11. We read there that the Deliverer will come and remove ungodliness from Jacob. Paul has, as he says, great sorrow about my natural kinsmen who are Israelites, not the church there. Happily, there is presently an Israel which is not limited to physical ethnic Israel, that is to say, true believers, the Israel of God of Galatians 6 verse 16, the true circumcision, which is us, Christian believers, Philippians 3 verse 3, Galatians 3 verse 29, as distinct from the Israel of the flesh, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 18. The real international children of Abraham are now drawn from both Jews and Gentiles via Isaac and Sarah and the promises. The children of the flesh are not currently the same as the Israel of the Spirit. The new covenant has included us all, Americans, Brits, Australians, and people of every nation in the true people of God, what Paul calls the true circumcision in Philippians 3 verse 3. Then Paul goes on. The Gentiles, he says, not pursuing righteousness, attain the right way, and Israel, that's to say Israelites, seeking it with law, did not find the right way. My prayer, Paul says, is for their salvation, not speaking there of the church, but of unconverted Israel. They, not the church, have a zeal for God, but without the right knowledge. Israel knew, but did not respond. As Paul says, quoting the Old Testament, I stretched forth my hand to a disobedient and obstinate people. Not, of course, meaning the church there, but ethnic Israelites. There is currently a remnant, however, the rest, not the church, the rest of now unconverted Israel are hardened and are enemies of the gospel. They do not now therefore count as God's true people, but if they do not continue in hardness of heart, then they can be grafted in again. A partial hardening has happened to them, 
not the church, but unconverted Israel, until, as Paul says, the full quota of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel, spiritual Israel, that is, the ones now partially hardened and true believers of every nation will be saved. That's to say, blindness will be removed from Jacob. From the point of view of the gospel, they, not the church, but ethnic Israelites, are enemies for your, that's the church's, sake. So now, in the now of that future, they will be shown mercy. This leads to Matthew 19.28 and Acts 1 verse 6 and Micah 2 verse 5 and Isaiah chapter 19. Here we have whole nations who will then at that future time be God's people, a thing impossible today since the kingdoms of this present world are not yet the kingdom of God. It's interesting to challenge audiences with a rather bewildering state of disagreement by major blocks of those claiming to believe. How did the Watchtower Society manage to convince millions that Jesus is Michael the Archangel? In Hebrews 1, there are two passages which absolutely exclude the idea that Jesus was ever an angel. Listen to this. I quote, Jesus is far superior to the angels, for to which one of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. Then he says this too, to which one of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Hebrews 1 verse 13. To no angel did God ever, ever say the things he said only to his son, Jesus. Very convincing also is the fact that Michael is said to be one of the chief angels. Daniel 10 verse 13 one of a category of archangels, but Jesus is not one of any category. Jesus is unique in his own category as the sole Messiah, son of David, son of God, and son of Mary. Jehovah's Witnesses claim to be, quote, one of Jehovah's Witnesses. And they mean just that. Show them then that Jesus cannot be one of the archangels. He cannot therefore be Michael. Anyway, a holy angel is immortal. And so Michael could not have died for the sins of the world as the son of God who died. How is it that one billion people not more nor less intelligent than ourselves, can believe that Mary was sinless, that she never had normal relations with her husband and was taken physically to heaven at death. 
that she and other saints, so-called, respond to the lighting of candles and to prayer. How do you get 23 million Seventh-day Adventists to believe that when the millennium comes, the earth will be vacated of human beings and only Satan will remain on the earth? You achieve this amazing feat when a single lady like Ellen G. White persuaded them all that she was more than a prophetess. But did anyone note what she did with Isaiah 24 verse 6, which states that after a vast depopulation of the world affected by the day of the Lord, the great and terrible day of the Lord's wrath, few men are left. As Isaiah says, Ellen White, if you will look at her tome, The Great Controversy, page 769, you will find that she simply left out the words, few men are left, in Isaiah 24, verse 6. This persuaded her millions of followers of an empty earth for a thousand years. She also, of course, predicted the second coming for 1844, and when it did not happen, she constructed a theory which stated that a special new event happened in heaven in that year. Later, Seventh-day Adventist scholars who challenged this were dismissed. Now, fresh from my recent trip to Indonesia and Malaysia, how do you get one and a half billion Muslims to believe that Jesus is Isa al-Masi, Jesus the Messiah, that he was born of a virgin, but that Allah has no son. The death of Jesus is at least unclear in the Quran, but it's clear that Muhammad had 11 wives. He allowed others to have four and as many concubines as desired. How to make this fit with the new covenant Christianity is beyond me. The Quran forbids the use of all alcohol. How well would the Jesus of the wedding at Cana fair, or the Lord's Supper, which foreshadows the messianic banquet at which fine wines will be consumed? Happily, the Quran does say, believe in Isa al-Masi, Jesus the Messiah. Do evangelicals preach the gospel? Following Steve Katsara's challenging and radical appeal for belief in the right Jesus and not a threatening another Jesus, may I ask kindly a similar radical question. I start with a fascinating quotation from the mammoth three-volume tome by G. N. Peters, entitled The Coming Kingdom of Our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. I'm thrilled and impressed with one of his opening statements. I quote, The New Testament begins the announcement of the kingdom in terms expressive of its being previously well known. The preaching of the kingdom 
its simple announcement, without the least attempt to explain its meaning and nature, the very language in which it's conveyed to the Jews, all presupposed that it was a subject familiar to all. John the Baptist, Jesus, and the Seventy all proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom in a way without definition or explanation that indicated that their hearers were acquainted with its meaning. That's from volume 1, page 181. I quote, Jesus frequently appealed to the Old Testament as a divine revelation whose meaning he and his audience held or ought to hold in common. If you misunderstood the Old Testament, you would automatically misunderstand the New. Moses, according to Jesus, had written about the Messiah. But if one were not prepared to believe what Moses wrote, it would be impossible to believe what Jesus said. John chapter 5, verses 46 and 47. After the resurrection, Jesus chided the disciples for their failure to grasp what the prophets had spoken. Luke 24, verses 25 to 27. This implies, of course, that what the prophets wrote was intelligible. There existed already clear evidence of the trustworthiness and factuality of the prophet's predictions. Micah had predicted the birthplace of the Messiah. Isaiah had foreseen the Messiah's activity as a miracle worker and healer. In Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6, Micah had predicted the details of the origin of the Messiah as being from ancient times. The translation from everlasting in the King James Version is very misleading. The meaning just attached to the word kingdom of God can only have been the meaning given to that phrase in the Old Testament. If another concept were intended by kingdom of God, some explanation would be required at the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry to avoid misunderstanding. The facts are that John makes his announcement of the kingdom on the presumption that his audience knew what the kingdom was. They reacted by coming to John for baptism. They could not have done this in the absence of information about what the kingdom was. Jesus spoke to Israel, to whom the oracles of God had been entrusted. Romans 3, verses 1 and 2. And according to Paul, Jesus came to confirm the promises made to the fathers. Romans 15, verse 8. Act 13, verse 32. The kingdom was itself the subject of the divine promise as the kingdom which God has promised to those who love him.
James 2 verse 7. It's impossible, therefore, that Jesus could have opened his ministry in Galilee by announcing the kingdom of God in any sense other than that which was intelligible to himself and his audience. Now, what was that sense? Though the phrase kingdom of God does not appear exactly in that form in the Hebrew Bible, the idea is so ubiquitous that John Bright declares that the whole Bible might rightly be called the book about the coming kingdom. A locus classicus for defining the kingdom of God is 1 Chronicles chapter 28. King David addressed an assemblage of officials declaring that God had chosen him to be king over Israel forever. 1 Chronicles 28 verse 4. Likewise, God had selected Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. Solomon was duly crowned king of the United Kingdom of Israel. They anointed him as ruler for the Lord. 1 Chronicles 29 verse 22 whereupon he sat on the throne of the Lord as king in the place of David his father, and he prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. Subsequently, Abijah succeeded to the throne of Judah, and when confronted with the opposing armies of Israel under Jeroboam, he reminded the latter that, and here I quote, the Lord God of Israel gave the rule over Israel to David forever and his sons by a covenant of salt. Second Chronicles 13 verse 5 It would therefore be unwise for Jeroboam to resist the kingdom of the Lord in the hands of of the sons of David. Second Chronicles 13 verse 8. There can be absolutely no doubt, therefore, that the kingdom of the Lord means the kingdom administered by the royal house of David. It still means that. The Davidic covenant had named the Davidic throne as the kingdom of God when Nathan had said to David, I will settle him, that's to say David's descendant, in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne will be established forever. First Chronicles 17 verse 14. The kingdom of God therefore meant the empire ruled by the dynasty of David over Israel in the promised land. Its capital was Jerusalem and it functioned on behalf of God himself and could therefore be called both God's kingdom and David's kingdom. The political and territorial nature of the kingdom is made clear in numbers of other significant passages in the Hebrew Bible. The prophet Obadiah describes the kingdom of the Lord as a time 
when Israel rules over former enemies. The supremacy of Israel is achieved when, and I quote, deliverers ascend Mount Zion to judge, that's to say in the Hebraic sense, to administer the mountain of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Obadiah verse 21. Again, the political and territorial character of the kingdom of God is crystal clear. So it is in Daniel 2 verse 44 where we read that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these other preceding kingdoms and it will itself endure forever. This empire is further described as a time when, and I quote here, the saints will possess the kingdom and all kingdoms and dominions will serve them. Daniel chapter 7 verses 22 and 27. It is to be located under the whole heaven. Daniel 9 27. Kingdom data appears in equally unambiguous terms in Isaiah chapter 16 verse 5 where we read, A throne will be established in loving kindness and a judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David. Micah's messianic prediction foresees a time coming when, and I quote, the Lord will reign over Israel in Mount Zion. Even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Micah chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. It is well known that the Targums, the Jewish commentaries, elucidate these passages with the paraphrase, the kingdom of God will be revealed. Zechariah forecasts that the Messiah will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river Euphrates to the ends of the earth. Sounds very much like the promise of the one God, the Father to his Son, Ask me, and I will give you the ends of the earth as your inheritance. Quotation from Psalm 2. Two further passages are of prime importance for establishing the territorial and political nature of the kingdom, as well as its thoroughly spiritual dimension as a kingdom initiated by Yahweh himself. In Isaiah chapter 40, we read, The glory of the Lord is to be revealed. This will mean the evangelization of the cities of Zion, when the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Once again, Targum recognizes in these events 
the revelation of the kingdom of God. And Zephaniah reports that following a period of severe judgment and beyond the day of the Lord, the king of Israel, the Lord, will be in their midst. Zion is comforted with the promise that the Lord will be present as a victorious warrior. Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17. The Lord, of course, will be there in the presence of his unique son, the returning Jesus. Finally, in Isaiah chapter 52 verse 7, there's a passage saturated with gospel and kingdom terminology. The announcement is made to Zion that, and I quote, your God reigns, resulting in the restoration of Zion and the comfort and redemption of Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter 52, 8 to 9, just what the New Testament saints were expecting. The kingdom thus established is viewed by all the nations. Isaiah 52 verse 10. Appropriately, the Targum sees in these events the setting up of the kingdom of God. The phrase, your God reigns, is more accurately, your God has assumed kingship. And this marks a definite new era of history on earth. There's nothing abstract about the kingdom, nor is the eternal sovereignty of God the subject of these grand prophecies. It's rather a political event, marking the intervention of the deity to take control of the kingdom by installing his ruler as head of a theocracy centered in Jerusalem. The basis of the concept is found in the Davidic covenant, which anticipates a descendant, a member of the house of David, presiding over the kingdom in the promised land. Compare with this Psalm 96 which reads, The Lord has assumed his kingship. He has begun to reign in a way in which he has not yet ever done, exactly as in Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 to 18, which predicts that at the seventh trumpet, the moment when the now sleeping dead return to conscious existence, the Lord and his Messiah will reign and begin to reign. The heiress there are ingressive, meaning that the action begins. In view of this mass of convergent evidence, it must be plain that when Jesus announced the kingdom of God, he did not need to tell his audience that there was going to be such a thing. It is surprising that commentaries have not made the political, territorial, and national aspects of the kingdom of God known to readers. It must be clear that Jesus was not talking into the air when he announced the near approach of the kingdom of God. 
The kingdom was something deeply embedded in the national consciousness of Israel and unambiguously defined by the Hebrew text of the Bible and the Targums. What has severely hampered understanding of the nature of the kingdom of God is the well-worn theory that Jesus must have been speaking of a so-called spiritual and not a political and geographical kingdom. A Jew might legitimately object that a kingdom managed by the anointed Messiah ruling in Jerusalem is utterly spiritual. It is in fact both spiritual and political, both national and universal. The fallacy of so much commentary and unexamined church tradition has been to set spiritual against political as though these are mutually exclusive ideas. However, in scripture, this is not the case. A prophecy which spelled out the geographical place on earth at which the Messiah was to be born, Micah 5 verse 2, was no less spiritual than the prophecy of his suffering for the sins of the world in Isaiah 53. The prophecy which announced the conception of the Messiah from a virgin was equally and thoroughly spiritual though related to a particular Israelite virgin living in a specific location and an exact time in history. Six months later than the conception of John the Baptist. It cannot be reasonably argued that Jesus meant anything by kingdom of God in Mark 1 verses 14 to 15 than his heritage which had been transmitted to him. Only on that basis can his opening gospel salvo have been intelligible. Only on that simple basis can he not have wiped out Old Testament scripture. There's a mass of New Testament evidence to corroborate the local, geographical, and political nature of the kingdom. Two passages in Luke tie the kingdom to geography. There was an occasion during the ministry of Jesus near Jerusalem that his audience thought that the kingdom would appear immediately. Of course, the king was in the proximity of the kingdom's capital city, the city of the great king. Their conception of the kingdom as having its capital in the Holy Land was absolutely right. Now, Jesus did not correct this expectation. The parable he gave was to clarify the fact that the kingdom would not appear immediately. Jesus taught that there was to be an interval during which he as Messiah would be absent. During that time, he would acquire his right to rule in the kingdom. He would then return to rule in that kingdom, dealing at that time with opponents who resisted his royal authority. 
Jesus would then be in the position of judge and would be authorized to, as he said, slay his enemies who did not want the Messiah to rule over them, as we read there in Luke chapter 17. A shattering warning, surely, for us all. Luke reports also that Jesus expected that many would arrive from the east and west, north and south, and join the resurrected patriarchs in the kingdom of God. Matthew 8 verse 11, Luke chapter 13 verses 28 and 29. The picture would naturally evoke in the minds of those familiar with the Hebrew Bible, the Messianic banquet described by Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 to 7, as a dinner, including fine wines. The banquet was to take place on this mountain, that is, in Jerusalem. All this may be obvious to Abrahamically trained people, but it is certainly not clear in the various evangelical circles I have recently encountered. All I heard about was heaven, the political and territorial nature of the kingdom is absent from that heaven so-called gospel. The question is, how far can one misdefine the kingdom of God and still count the resultant message to be the true gospel? Might not Jesus say to churches today, you are gravely mistaken, not knowing the scripture nor the power of God. Jesus had just explained to them the rather elementary fact that since God is the God of the living, and since it was well recognized that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were still dead and buried, then that future blessed resurrection was the only way that the faithful dead could be reunited in one glorious throng, ready to take up their positions in that future kingdom. Bishop Wright, for all his skills and talents, still does not get this right. He speaks of the resurrection as life after life after death. But then curious blindness leads him to tell us that the parousia in Matthew 24, Mark 13 and Luke 21 happened in AD 70. All this about the kingdom and the gospel, I think, we need to be reminded is not just, quote, eschatology. It's the throbbing and life-giving heart of the saving gospel as Jesus and Paul preached it. The cry still goes out from the risen Messiah, repent and believe the gospel of the kingdom. Mark 1 verses 14 to 15. I must preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, 
Jesus said, that's why God sent me. Luke 4 verse 43. That cry is summarized in the Great Commission to baptize everyone everywhere who will respond to the gospel as Jesus and Paul preached it. The command to baptize is not an optional extra. It's part of the handful of very simple and basic commands given by Jesus. Peter is insistent that even after Gentiles had received the Spirit, they should be baptized in water. Who can prevent the water? He asked. I was disappointed in Indonesia when one breakfast time some were beginning to deconstruct the public sign, which is water baptism and initiation into the one body. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. The problem is that if one leaves the mosque and gets baptized, one is in dire trouble. So, I heard it being said, what if we just invite them to pledge allegiance to Jesus? I must say I have misgivings about any such maneuver. Can we mess with the Great Commission in that way? Baptism in water is one of those very basic, simple New Testament teachings practiced and commanded by Jesus, John, Paul, and Peter. It's a New Testament given, not open to question, if words have plain meanings. So I suggest Peter commanded them in the name of Jesus to be baptized in water. Who can forbid the water, Peter said. Having sat through a long lecture in Texas about the world being empty during the thousand years, I would urge us all to be able to defend the truth of the millennium with passion and excitement. It might be good to not get excessively overheated about an immediate second coming. Adventists have a record over the past centuries of, and I quote, knowing that world events show that Jesus is bound to come almost immediately. This, of course, never means that we should be asleep. We should be always abounding in the work of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. We should pay attention, too, to both Jesus and Paul's warning that certain events must happen first. I suggest that the Markan words, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to, note that the Revised Version corrected the King James Version there, as early as 1881, Jesus said that this was the main sign which he gave of the impending end. He was asked, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? There's a single Antichrist figure in 1 John 2 verse 18, whom Jesus slays with the breath of his mouth at his coming as in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8. This figure for Paul is traced 
to Isaiah 11 verse 4, where the king of Assyria is the expected final tyrant. The beast in Revelation is also seen as a he, a single person. When John gives him a masculine pronoun in Revelation 17 verse 11 and Revelation 13 verse 14, the word for beast, I note, is actually neuter, so John is making a special point here, as does Mark in Mark 13, 14. The abomination standing where he ought not to. The beast abomination is a person, just as that wicked person comes to his end, as we read in Daniel 9, verse 26b, comes to his end, that is, in the final and decisive destruction brought by God in Jesus. As Unitarians, I think we have to be careful to remain both Father and Son-centered. If we lose the Son, we can revert to Moses when there was no Son. Peter Barfoot in Australia sent me this email. He said, I thought you might be interested in the following, which I have just posted on Facebook. The thought came to me while praying in the early hours. We sometimes mix our metaphors, but we must never confuse the facts. God is our Father. That is a fact. Jesus is our brother. This too is a fact. But God can never be our brother, and Jesus can never be our Father. Jesus is the Son of God, but never God the Son. This distinction between the Father and the Son is critical to praying scripturally. Without it, we speak of one in the same terms as the other, and we confuse the truth. We should give praise and glory to Jesus for what he did and worship and glorify the Father for who he is. We glorify both Father and Son for different reasons when we make this distinction. Paul thanked Jesus for putting him in ministry and Jesus was worshipped not as God but as the human Lamb, the Messiah. Jesus is obviously concerned with our prayers. Not only does he now do what Yahweh does, he searches the hearts and minds. But he said in John 14, 14, if you ask me something in my name, that's to say, as a true disciple, I will do it. Jesus is that one man mediator and comforter. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, the NIV obscures this easy fact that the paraclete, the comforter, is actually Jesus in 1 John 2 verse 1. We certainly all have our work cut out to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. 
Jesus and Paul did not have to face quite the chaos of clamoring religious arguments and divisions which we have today. Finding and holding truth may seem rather like finding a needle in a haystack, but I'm convinced we have truths to which we must hold fast for our own salvation, and in order to pass them on, polished and refined, to our successors. It still remains an overwhelmingly interesting fact that Jesus promised to send scribes, that's to say trained Bible personnel, in Matthew 23, verse 34, and he interpreted as among the righteous those instructors who make many righteous. As he said in Matthew 13, verse 43, and compare that with Daniel 12, verse 2. A very unpopular text is Isaiah 53, verse 11, where the Messiah, servant, and I quote, makes many righteous by his knowledge, of course, because, and I quote again, the Son came to give us an understanding that we might come to know God. 1 John 5, verse 20. All this is based on Abraham's and Jesus' example, so loved by Paul, who twice quotes the amazingly simple truth that Abraham believed God and this was reckoned to him as making him right, not wrong, straight and no longer crooked. You'll find that in Genesis 15, verse 6, cited by Paul in Galatians 3, verse 6, and Romans 4, verse 3. To Abraham was promised, and I quote, progeny, prosperity, and property. We become heirs of these promises through the obedience of faith. Romans 1, verse 5, and Romans 16, verse 26, and of course, by obeying the gospel as Jesus preached it. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Food for thought. Here's an interesting question. John reports Jesus as saying that we must be born again if we are to understand and see the kingdom of God, since being born again is the basic condition for salvation. Where did Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention this as they record Jesus' teaching? Did John not believe in repentance? He does not ever use that word. Did John not believe in faith? He uses the noun faith only once in all his writings. Did John not believe in the gospel? He does not ever use that word. These are things to be pondered and meditated upon so that our preaching of the gospel of the kingdom and the name of Jesus might be all the more effective.